Hello and welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters podcast with me, Nigel Palmer. And in this week's podcast, we are going to be looking into the facts about bovine TB, that terrible cattle disease that is affecting so much of our wildlife now. And on Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're going to be looking into the cruelness of hare hunting. We're also going to take a few moments to kick off our shoes and spend a little bit of time in nature with mindful moments. But before all that, let's kick off with this week's Nature News. Wildlife Matters Nature News, we're going to be looking into a new survey that suggests that 75% of the British public want to see large animals removed from zoos. A majority of people want zoos and wildlife parks to phase out keeping large animals in captive enclosures. Research commissioned by the Born Free Foundation found that three quarters of respondents said it was very or quite important that the next UK government begins phasing out large captive animals such as elephants, lions, tigers and rhinos. Born Free said the survey undertaken by Opinion Matters and sampling 2,000 adults from each UK region shows a tide of public support for its policy of removing large animals from zoos which it described as archaic, unethical and damaging. A spokesman from the British and Irish Association of Zoos and Aquariums said surveys by YouGov have shown the opposite results that in fact more than 75% of the UK public support zoo conservation and that Born Free's figures did not seem to relate to the real world. Dr. Mark Jones, Born Free's Head of Policy, said wild animals are traded and kept in zoos and private homes in ever-increasing numbers. Wildlife crime continues to have a devastating impact on individual animals, wildlife, habitats and wider society. Far too little is being done to effectively protect and restore our natural fauna and flora or safeguard the welfare of wild animals. Born Free released a manifesto on Thursday in which it wants political parties to commit to phasing out captive animals, ban the importation of hunting trophies, stop the badger cull and end the use of animal fur in the military hats. It said the British public supports its policies citing the results of the survey which also found that 85% agreed there should be a ban on bringing endangered animals into the UK as hunting trophies. 67% supported an end to the badger culls and 79% agree with the stopping of the import and sale of fur. A spokesman for the British and Irish Zoological Association said we agree the government should prioritise the protection and restoration of UK wildlife which is why we've supported campaigns to maintain and strengthen protections for native species. We agree the government should do more to tighten up the trade in, in the keeping of exotic pets, which is why we have been a leading voice on calling 
for the outlaw of primates as pets. The British and Irish Zoological Association's zoos and aquariums are said to be enormously popular, welcoming over 35 million visits in a normal year. Just this week, our member zoos and aquariums are enjoying packed out crowds learning about nature and supporting conservation here in the UK and across 105 different countries. It is overwhelmingly clear that the great British public support good zoos and aquariums to care for animals and make our planet a better and wilder place. Other results from Born Free's survey found that 83% of respondents agree that the government should tighten controls on keeping exotic pets and 82% would support the government using its influence through trade deals to end animal cruelty overseas. In Scotland, 88% of people were against the use of traps and snares which are designed to restrain an animal until an operator of the trap comes to kill it. A recent report from the Scottish Animal Welfare Commission said snares cause significant welfare harms to both target and non-target species as some animals die slowly when caught and juveniles may starve if their parents become trapped. Will Travers, Born Free's executive president, said, We call on all political parties to recognise the importance of protecting and restoring wildlife and wild habitats and eliminating the negative impacts we have on the welfare of individual animals by placing nature protection and animal welfare improvements at the heart of their manifesto commitments and delivering on those commitments in the parliamentary sessions that will follow. Nothing less will do. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. And on this week's Wildlife Matters, we're going to be looking into hare hunting in the UK. Um, let me first, though, just explain a little bit about hares and uh, why they are such amazing wild animals. So the brown or European hare is one of the largest hare species that is well adapted to living in open countryside. Hare live completely above the ground with females nesting in scrapes and the leverets active immediately after birth. The brown hare is not native to the UK, but has naturalised here for many centuries. Whilst not endangered throughout Britain, hare populations have been in general decline for many years, primarily due to the changes in farming practices over the last few decades. Hare that do not hibernate or store any appreciable amounts of fat on their bodies, so they need a constant food supply throughout the year. This can only be provided by landscapes rich in biodiversity. 
Farmland in the past had a diversity of grass and herb species maturing in succession throughout the year, and hare actually prefers to eat wild grasses and herbs, with grasses predominating in the winter and herbs during the summer months. The monoculture fields of today's modern farms mean that hares have to travel ever further to find food, and this, and constant shooting by farmers who see hare as pests that damage crops, have seen local extinctions of brown hare, particularly in the southwest of England. Traditionally, hares have been hunted by two distinct methods. Beagling, where scent hounds are used to flush and chase the hare with the hunters following on foot. And the other variation is known as harriers, where the faster hounds are usually followed by hunters on horses. There is a third method of hare hunting known as coursing, but that is distinctly different as it uses sight hounds that chase the hare, and that will be covered in a future podcast. Beagle hounds were bred not for their speed, but for their stamina, as that guaranteed the lengthy chase that these hunters sought. Whilst harrier hounds were preferred by hunters that pursued on horseback, these are often fox hunters looking for additional animals to inflict pain, suffering and death upon. The hare hunting season in Britain ran from September or, or October, depending on the type of pack used, right through until March. A time period that encompasses the main hare breeding season in early spring. And it is by no means uncommon for hunts to kill pregnant hare or their leverets, which are baby hares. Whilst hare hunters don't specifically hunt leverets in the same way that fox hunters do deliberately pursue fox cubs, known as cub hunting or autumn hunting, as their prelude to the fox hunting season, there are numerous accounts of hunters training the hounds onto young hares. You see, hare are reluctant to leave their territory and they won't venture onto new ground under threat and as a result hare hunting takes place over a limited area often not more than a couple of square miles. Hares spend their lives above ground so do not go to ground like foxes or rabbits when being hunted so the chase can last up to 90 minutes before the hare is finally killed by the hounds. The hunted hare is run to complete exhaustion and for the individual hare, the effect on their body is devastating. This is well depicted in one count that came from the Eton College Hunt Master, who said the best run the Beagles had during his mastership was in the region of Dorney, where they ran a hare for an hour and five minutes, covering more than six miles, and in the end, she burst her heart just in front of the hound. I mean, how can you get any satisfaction from that, really? Just like fox hunters, though, in fact, many are the same people. Hare hunters know a few tricks to enhance their fun at the expense of the hare. In the run-up to the Hunting Act, HuntSab groups noticed the bagging of hare to be released in front of the hound packs, just like the fox hunts used bagged foxes, although the hare was boxed rather than bagged. Hare was commonly netted, i.e. trapped in long nets spread across their run areas 
before being transported around the country in small wooden crates to be released for hunting. It's hard to describe the suffering of the hare involved in this cruel practice or the hunter's complete disregard for the spreading of disease between distinct hare populations across the country. Today, there are 59 beagle packs and 19 harrier packs in the UK. Despite claims of beagle packs trail hunting, this has never, to my knowledge, been recorded by hunts or by sabs. In fact, once challenged, most hunts will claim to be chasing rabbits, which is equally cruel but easily disproved as rabbits act in a completely different way to hares. You see, rabbits run for the sanctuary of their burrow when disturbed, as opposed to the hare who stays above ground despite the danger. As rabbits don't run any distance, they have never been of much interest to those who hunt with packs of hounds. The hare hunters are so brazen that they held week-long festivals where hunt packs from all over the country would gather to hunt a relatively small area, such as Alston in Cumbria or the Seven Vale, for a period of one and sometimes up to as much as two weeks, often with two packs of hounds hunting each day. I mean, what chance did any hare have? The impact on the local hare population was absolutely devastating and the use of the boxed hair was barely disguised. Some of these festivals continued after the introduction of the Hunting Act, as the hunters claimed it was a tradition and their right as country folk. Both of these excuses have been used to support the bloodthirsty fox hunts and are always treated with the contempt they deserve by people who care about wildlife wherever they live. True country folk live in their environment and local communities and don't hunt wildlife for pleasure or sport. One of the oddities of our legal system here in the UK is that it is illegal to hunt the hare on a Sunday, a law that was meant to encourage church attendance. The brown hare is the only species in Britain that does not have a close season for shooting. In fact, organised shoots in East Anglia during February and March can account for up to 40% of the entire national brown hare population, with orphaned leverets left to die of starvation. Hare does have a remarkable ability to recover from such a devastating slaughter, but the welfare implication on individual hare is as obvious as it is despicably pointless. Whilst hare hunting is now illegal under the Hunting Act, and the police seem to be far more active in East Anglia, particularly during February and March in catching illegal hare hunters, it is clear to me the brown hare need legal protection from the relentless slaughter of the shooting industry. You see, brown hare are not agricultural pests. They are beautiful, sentient animals who are now part of our natural biodiversity in here in the UK. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates. And now it's time on the Wildlife Matters podcast to sit back, kick off your shoes and just enjoy a few moments of mindfulness in nature. Let's see if you can tell which animal is the start of this week's Mindful Moments. 
to me but that was the sound of the gray seal anybody who got that i think has done extremely well this week so well done that was this week's wildlife matters mindful moments We're going to be looking into bovine TB and just explaining the facts. We know that the British government has culled over 175,000 badgers over the last 10 years. But still, farmers are losing cattle to bovine TB and nobody seems to have the answer. So let's just look at bovine TB and explain what it is and we can make some conclusions from that point. So, the facts are... Mycobacterium bovis, often referred to as bovine tubercle bacillus, is a member of the Mycobacterium tuberculosis complex, a group of organisms with the capacity to cause tuberculosis in humans and in animals. Bovine TB, or to use the correct term, Mycobacterium bovis, is a disease caused by a specific species of bacteria known as M. bovis. Bovine TB, as the name suggests, usually affects a bovine animal such as cattle. However, it can affect nearly all mammals, causing a general state of illness, coughing, and ultimately death. Bovine TB is also known as a zoonotic disease, meaning that it can pass from animals to humans. It can also pass to animals in the same species or animals in another species. M. bovis is a different species of bacteria to M. tuberculosis that is the usual cause of TB in humans. The name tuberculosis comes from the nodules called tubercules that are formed in the lymph nodes of infected animals or people. So, how does bovine TB spread? Well, bovine TB is spread by contact with an infected animal. The infection occurs from inhaling infected droplets that are expelled from the lungs through coughing. Bovine TB infection can also occur from a direct contact with an open wound on an infected animal. Because of the spread of bovine TB is very slow, an infectious animal may infect very many others before showing any clinical signs of the disease. It is also known that bovine TB can lay latent and remain undetected in infectious animals 
for long periods of time. And this can be several years, with the TB particles lying in soil often for three to four years. And I do believe the longest case ever recorded was in Switzerland a few years ago, when the gap was actually in the region of 20 years that the bovine TB lay undetected in a herd of cattle. Bovine TB, though, can also be spread through the ingestion of milk and meat from infected animals. The link between drinking milk from diseased cows and the development of scrofula, cervical lymph node tuberculosis, was established as far back as the mid-19th century. Cervical lymphanonitis cases in children were caused by M. bovis. Infection acquired through ingestion of M. bovis is more likely to result in non-pulmonary forms of the disease. Tuberculosis is the reason we pasteurise milk. This, in addition to the immunisation of humans, known as BCG, has seen the number of cases in humans reduced dramatically. It should be noted that cattle with BTB lesions are routinely discovered by slaughterhouse workers, so there is little doubt that infected meat products enter into the human food chain. So how is bovine TB diagnosed? Well, in the UK, the standard method is by using a skin test the single intradermal comparative cervical tuberculine test, the acronym of which is SICCT. This is an interdermal skin test. Avian and bovine purified protein derivative tuberculins are injected into the skin in separate sites of the neck by a veterinarian, and reactions to the injections are measured and compared. The SICT test relies on a delayed hypersensitivity reaction to the injected tuberculin. Sensitized T-cells recruit and orchestrate the infiltration of other cell types into the injection area, thereby leading to a transient swelling measured at the optimum time of 72 hours from the injection. By utilizing two different microbacterium species, the SICT test compares the reaction of the animal to each tuberculin. This increases the specificity of the test by differentiating between cattle infected with M. bovis and those exposed to other microbacterium and therefore sensitized to the tuberculin. So is there a treatment for bovine TB? Well, there is a treatment for humans with bovine TB. However, this is a long process with bovine TB resistance to some of the drugs used by doctors to cure M tuberculosis. For animals, the treatment is often considered as not economically viable and they are euthanized and the farmer compensated by the UK taxpayer. Whilst cattle are the main hosts of bovine TB, the disease can affect all mammals, both domestic pets and wildlife. In the UK, the following animals are known to be infected with bovine TB. They are alpaca, sheep, deer, and this includes farmed, wild and park deer, pet dogs, pet cats, pigs, 
and farmed wild boar. There are many species in the UK where insufficient testing does not allow any clear indication of risk. These include wild species such as badgers, foxes, mink, ferrets, squirrels, otters, seals, hares, wild boar and moles, and farm animals such as horses, pigs, goats, sheep and llamas. Humans currently have about a 1% incidence of bovine TB. These are primarily farm workers that can have a prolonged exposure to animals that are infected or infectious with bovine TB. Back in March 22, there was an increasing trend for higher occurrences, live cultural positives of bovine TB in cats and alpacas. Bovine TB is found throughout the world. It is most prevalent in Africa and parts of Asia and the Americas. Many developed countries have reduced or eliminated bovine TB from their cattle population. However, significant pockets of infection remain in Canada, the United Kingdom, the United States and New Zealand. All areas where intensive farming is a model that is followed. Until the 1920s, bovine TB was one of the major diseases of animals throughout the world. 100 years later, it remains a major disease of cattle and wildlife. To anyone who's listened to me so far, it may seem clear that the solution to bovine TB needs to be focused on the source of the disease and that, in the UK, is intensively farmed cattle in cattle herds. This seems to have escaped the ministers of DEFRA, the UK government agency responsible for controlling bovine TB for over a decade. In fact, over the last 10 years, they have licensed the slaughter of over 175,000 badgers at a cost of around 55 million pounds whilst they have had to continue to pay farmers around £100 million per year in compensation, whilst failing to achieve their claimed reduction in the incidence of bovine TB that they targeted and gave the reason for the badger colds all the way back in 2013. The badger cold is an extensive and emotive subject that I have been personally involved in for over 12 years. I will be sharing more information based on the science, fact and my own experience in future podcasts. But for this one, I just wanted to lay out the science and the facts and hopefully give you a better understanding of the situation. It's clear to me that the British government have badly let down our farmers, their cattle and the wild badgers who are just innocent victims of this situation. I believe the answer is to find the political will to solve the problem. The science already exists. There are different testing methods and bovine TB can be detected before it becomes a problem in herds and herds can be cleared up with new testing methods that the government are refusing to license and only running pilot schemes. It's as if they want to prolong the badger cold. And you have to ask yourself, why?
time round on the Wildlife Matters podcast, we're going to be sticking with the Badger theme as we start a short series of investigations into the Badger colds in England and Wales and the devastating effect they have had on our Badger populations and uh, just try and answer the question as to why our government continue to want to cull Badgers. In Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're also going to be taking a look at my favourite habitat, which is ancient woodlands, and giving you an idea of how to identify when you're in an ancient woodland. We would just like to say once again a huge welcome and thank you to all of our new listeners to the Wildlife Matters podcast. We really are growing at some rate now, and it's an absolute pleasure to welcome you here, and I do hope you've enjoyed what you heard. Do like, subscribe and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, then please do. Our email address is hello at wildlife-matters.org. That's hello at wildlife-matters.org. You can find a lot more information on our website, which is www.wildlife-matters.org. That's www.wildlife-matters.org. But for now, this is me, Nigel Palmer, Wildlife Matters, signing off.